So CNN is airing this series about the history of Black television. It's called See It Loud. And in it, you get an understanding of how Black programming helped grow and expand the television industry. Blacks are watching more TV, 70 hours a week, say the Nielsen numbers. FUBU means for us, by us. In the 1990s, you had all these fledgling networks coming up. UPN, the WB, who were specifically targeting black audiences. And as I'm watching it, I realize that since the 90s, a certain number of shows also shared creative DNA. Uh, Mr. Mack. Yes. Hi. Sorry to bother you. Hi. Brianna tells me that she's having a party and that you wouldn't let her invite her whole class. Pardon? See, if you invite one child from the class, you have to invite the whole class. But you need that, right? So you're saying that if I invite one child, I have to invite all these germy, nasty, filthy little kids to the party, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Family sitcoms, The Bernie Mac Show, Sister, Sister, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, sketch comedy classic In Living Color, the animated satire, The PJs. And the Emmy goes to... Larry Wilmore, the Bernie Mac Show! The thing that they have in common is writer, producer, and comedian Larry Wilmore. Wow. Wow. That's all I can say. This, I feel like Halle Berry, actually. <laughs> and this was Wilmore back in 2002, accepting an Emmy for comedy writing. This is unreal. This is not supposed to happen in your first season. He was the first black person to win that category. Since then, he's also played key roles on The Daily Show, The Office, Blackish, Insecure. And the Emmy for writing for a comedy series goes to Quinta Brunson. And he's even become a mentor to a new generation. And um, I do want to thank Larry Wilmore for teaching me uh, to write television as well as he did. I know that's random. Larry Wilmore reached this point after years of navigating writers' rooms, fickle showrunners, demanding network execs, and critics of all kinds. Theater is always kind of um, ahead of culture. Film oftentimes mirrors the culture, and TV is kind of a reaction to the culture, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that type of thing. And it's rare when TV leads the culture. So what does that mean for the role that television plays in our lives and in shaping our understanding of American identity? Well, we're going to share today's assignment with Larry Wilmore. He's host of the podcast Black on the Air. We'll talk about his prolific career in television, mentoring younger writers, dapping up President Obama, and what he's working on next. I'm Audie Cornish. Stay with us. My name is Larry Wilmore. Um, I've done a little bit of everything. Some people, different people uh, know me from different things. I was going to ask, when you get stopped on the street, what is it? It depends. You know, some people still know me as the senior black correspondent on The Daily Show. They don't even know that I have my own show. You know, it's just the the Daily Show. That's the thing emblazoned on their minds. Some people might recognize me from The Office, you know, see me as Mr. Brown. And that's the only thing. And I do have some fans out there who kind of know that I've been a producer for all these years. They go, oh, the real TV nerds. Yeah, exactly. And, (laughs) And in the last few years... I've got many podcast fans of people who I'm with them on a walk or I'm with them, you know, when they're working out or that type of thing. So that's a whole different relationship that's come up that is kind of cool. You yeah, know, I mean, people used know to, us. Yeah, you this, know, they're used yeah. to hearing my voice. And so they hear my voice and they go, wait, that oh, wait, <laughs> you know. So there's a lot of little pods that uh, I'm kind of 
recognized yeah. for known for. I want to talk about your career in a minute, but first I want to ask you about your relationship to television. Mm-hmm. When did it start? So me, I grew up like where black people were making, were pioneers in television. Ooh, tell me. Up. So give so, me a timestamp. Okay. So like Diane Carroll and Julia, you know, she was a single mom, was a nurse, had a son. We hadn't seen anything like that. So that was like big. Flip Wilson, you know, black men have a variety show. Only person on television who was black who had his own variety show during that time. Bill Cosby and I Spy, black lead of a of a dramatic show, you know, was won Emmys and that kind of stuff. You know, these were like, I saw breakthroughs when I was a kid of of us doing something, the people who were doing things first, you know. And so TV kind of um, showed me that there could be these social breakthroughs that can happen, that television can be responsible for that. All in the family, I remember watching that thinking, wow, you know, they're talking about race in a way no one's ever done. You know, that was another type of breakthrough, you know. So a lot of my early television viewing was seeing that TV had a a social component Mm -hmm. to it. It wasn't just entertainment. And it's interesting because it's also a period where America is reckoning with the racial dialogue that it has just had, right, generationally about integration or class or whatever. Um, And these things start to surface in Mm -hmm. the culture, right? Because there's that weird door that opens where suddenly some executive somewhere is like, let's have Diane Carroll, you know, and like suddenly it's an Mm -hmm. idea that they're open to in a way that they might not have been before. Yeah. Yeah, I've always, uh, you know, when I talk about I think I've talked about art and this type of thing before. I was the theater is always kind of um, ahead of culture. Film oftentimes mirrors the culture, and TV is kind of a reaction to to the culture. Oh, interesting, <laughs> <You know>? yeah, <laughs> that type of thing. And it's rare when TV leads the culture. Like it's usually a reaction to the culture. And a couple of times it has, like when Roots was on, that was. That was something that was ahead of the culture. Right, this is the massive know, Alex Haley miniseries. It was like pro- yeah. one of the biggest miniseries of all time, I think. And LeVar Burton had to start there, many others. And one of the reasons, because they thought no one was going to watch it, so they decided to air it all in one week rather than string it out over a week at a time like they normally did. But in their mind, they're like, oh, we got to just put this on because nobody's going to watch Who's this. Who's going to watch this? Yes. Yeah, slavery. It became this Yuck. binge that uh, created this whole different entity because people are like, oh, no, homie, we are going to watch this. Are you kidding me? <laughs> How did it? Uh, <laughs> the real history of black people in America? <laughs> right. You don't right. think we're going to watch this? Yeah. yeah. Um, So how do you think this affected how you thought about um, yourself and your ability to, like, enter that world? Well, I wasn't too self-conscious about that. I I always liked being funny and making jokes. My brother and I used to do that formally and informally all the time. I, I got... I started performing at a young age, but sometimes it was magic. I did magic tricks growing up and that type Wait, of thing. Wait, how old were you? Uh, I was about seven. Aww, seven years old. Yeah. Little baby, little more. <laughs> Pulling stuff still... out of a hat. What did you do? What was your thing? Uh, it was like sleight of hand, that type of thing. I, I actually still, I, I perform at the Magic Castle sometimes. It's still a hobby of mine. Oh, I'm, I'm going to see that. Okay. Yeah. It's another compartment that a lot of people didn't, don't know until recently, the whole magic thing. But, uh, but comedy was always something, you know, you think you might be able to do, but you don't really think that, you know. What, what was your first break, big break, so to speak? 
I was very influenced at the time by seeing what Keenan Ivory Wayans was doing. Uh, like I said, Robert Towns and Spike Lee were black um, creators were creating new spaces, mm-hmm. you know. So I did it at a time where there was, I think, a lot of wind for it, you know, um, at least in my mind. Also, I've always been very entrepreneurial in spirit anyway. So I don't, I'm not comfortable with just waiting to be hired for something. I'm more comfortable creating a space for something is the way that my brain works. So I'm more comfortable doing that than I am waiting around trying to get hired. Yeah. Not very comfortable. So I was never, I was never, that's why I was never really comfortable just as an actor. In college, I studied acting and playwriting and that sort of thing. But it was never really a comfort zone for me because I have a very creative mind that likes to invent. You know, that's why stand up worked because I got to invent things, um, bits, jokes, things like that. And many of the things that I came up in my stand up weren't necessarily good for stand up. They were better. Maybe one was a film idea or a TV idea. Do you remember any? Like, do you have an example of that? Well, like, yeah, like, so my early act was a combination of different things. It wasn't just me commenting on things. Like, sometimes I'd do a commercial parody, which you would see on a sketch show. So I had one called Black Away. And what Black Away was, it was this thing, it was this um, product that you put on your tongue that took the black out of your voice. So, you, you know, you could do job interviews over right. the phone and that sort of thing. And you would, <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is one is like, one to do. <laughs> yeah. It's like, say, brothers, are you tired of white people looking at you funny whenever you talk? You know, like he's speaking a foreign language or something. So that's why I use this revolutionary new black away. Just two drops on the tongue and it takes the black right and shit, it takes the black right out of your voice. And I would go, yes, revolutionary new black away works right in the mouth to remove even the most stubborn colloquial slang. <laughs> and, it <would> always, <laughs> and it would always get a big laugh. But to me, even though I did it in my stand-up and it worked right. in the clubs, I knew that that also was a sketch. Yeah, You know, I go, that works as a sketch too. So my brain was creating things that could work as sketches. And, you know, sometimes you'd have a one-liner or something or that type of thing that maybe more of a movie idea or that type of thing, you know, but it's the, it's the germ of a, of a, of a dramatic relationship. And I guess, cause I studied theater in college, you know, I had more of a, you know, of that type of brain, you know, of, of thinking creatively in that way, more so than just thinking about jokes, you know? So I've always thought about storytelling more so than just jokes. I want to ask you about your time with In Living Color, because you were a writer with that show for a short time. Can you talk about what that writer's room looked like? Oh, yeah. In Living Color, uh, I always say it was the worst of times. It was the worst of times. (laughs) It was. (laughs) Um, But it it truly was the best of times, too. But uh, In Living Color had one of the funniest writer's rooms I've ever been in. We were, it was so funny, but it was also very competitive. And you thought you were going to get fired at any moment. That's the best way to explain it. You knew it was the first time I had been associated with something that had a pop culture component where people would lose their minds knowing that you worked on it, you know? So, oh, oh, you're a writer. Oh, what show do you write on? Let me go. Oh my God, you write on Let Me Color? Like people would react like that. Right. And it was ubiquitous and um, the catchphrases or whatever, they would really um, they would really seep into the consciousness. You know what I'm saying? And of course, you had these big Jim Carrey and all the Ivory Wayans and, you know, really amazing artists on there being funny. How did you actually think about 
representation. Uh, with Keenan, here's a black man running a TV show. The only thing like it in television, really. So all we had to do was be funny, you know, and think about what angle are we taking on this that is funny. So we didn't have to worry about being authentic or doing this or that because with Keenan running it, it just, it gives you a certain freedom that we wouldn't have had if it had been the other way around. So I learned a valuable lesson there. Who gets to control the narrative mm. and how important controlling the narrative is to the creative process and what you're putting on television. Depending on who's at the helm, and I call it a gaze now, whose gaze is this? You know, what cultural gaze is this? Really affects what you can do on the show. So we got a lot, we got away with a lot of things because Keenan was the showrunner. Right. It was his show, you know. What did your time in In Living Color do to establish your style and point of view? Yeah. So In Living Color, it kind of validated a lot of the satirical type of comedy that I like and commentary on the culture that I liked. And I was able to do in that show. Some of it I had in my act, you know, like I said, and it didn't quite have a home, but my act was littered with that type of stuff in different forms. And so in Living Color validated that, oh, there's a market for this type of thing, you know, and you can actually put this out in the world, you know. So even though I wasn't thinking so consciously about that at the time, you're just trying to get work and be funny and all that stuff. You know, I think if I look back, it certainly gave me permission to be brave with that. And, you know, the first show that I created, co-created was the PJs. And that was a completely satirical show, you know, that was animating and everything. And, and the jokes we had in there, you probably can't do <laughs> right now. After the break, Larry talks about his controversial performance at the 2016 White House Correspondents' Dinner. We'll have more in a minute. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When I was growing up, I'm not sure I would have thought of all those 90s black family sitcoms that were on the burgeoning, I would call, networks, whether it was UPN, then became CW, or Fox. You know, how they often established themselves with quote-unquote urban programming um, before they went on and made Dawson Creeks or whatever. But like those yes, were... Sh I called it an ethnic cleansing. It wasn't... Have. Once, <laughs> once, they would, once they would get football... Or all the black shows had to be on one channel on the same night, which I call n at night is my other term See, for See, this is why I can't um, take you anywhere. This is the part <laughs> of you that drives me crazy, okay? Am I 
Am I wrong? You were your, right. Your real question. <laughs> you are right. Your real question should be: Is Larry Wilmore wrong? <laughs> All right. Here's the thing. I remember the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yes. With you, where you used the N word with <laughs> President Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I lived in a country where people couldn't accept a black quarterback. Now think about that. A black man was thought by his mere color not good enough to lead a football team. And now, to live in your time, Mr. President, when a black man can lead the entire free world. Um, uh, Words alone do me no justice. Um, So, Mr. President, if I'm going to keep it 100, yo, Barry, you did it, my (laughs) Did it. Thank you very much. Good night. And he understood it, which is the most important thing. Really? You know, he immediately, oh, he immediately got up, immediately gave me props for it. He referenced it uh, in a speech to Howard like a week later. Yeah. He said, as Larry Wilmer said, you know, because what I was saying, people focus on the fact that I said, you did it, my you did it. You know, the colloquial point about it, and that was the public solitude moment about it, to share something publicly that is normally a moment of non-public right sharing. for us that correct that was there was a point to that yeah though, you know but like as um, one of the people sitting at the tables right like where i am mm-hmm. one of the few black people it's like supposed to be uncomfortable. i had that moment where i was like you, can't, Larry, you can't say that in front of these white people no, what are you I, doing but i have never been guided by what people tell me i can and cannot say yeah. because that's not how i i create you know i don't I don't create through censorship. I create through expression, you know. And so and I don't create for social acceptance. I create for expression. So if it's okay if somebody doesn't like me because of that, I'm I'm okay with that. That's I don't mind that risk. You know, if somebody doesn't like it, I'm not doing it so they'll like it or like me. You know, that was a moment of expression that was had a different purpose. So I'm fine with people not liking or thinking it's wrong. I got no problem with that. And I understand why they wouldn't do it. That's why. I did it because I'm me and I get it that they wouldn't do it because they're them. I hear you taking a kind of accountability for the joke itself, meaning mm-hmm. you're delivering it and you're willing to take whatever risk happens. Absolutely. Right. You're not sure. delivering it and then being like, Audie, um, shut you up. You didn't understand. Yeah, you didn't understand. Yeah, right. right. Like you're not taking right. me to task for no, whatever reason. Like it feels like you have an understanding with the audience of like, here's the deal. That's right. Yeah. I'm fine with that. I know I completely understand why people wouldn't like it. And I have no problem with that. And I get it. And, and to me, I say, that's why it wouldn't be a joke that you would do. I get it. But this is something that I would do. Yeah. That's what makes us different. And yes, I am willing to take that consequence. I don't mind the consequence of people not liking it. The The consequence is somebody doesn't like it. And the bigger consequence to somebody, maybe they won't like you. And the larger consequence is what's going to happen to you in showbiz. I don't care about all those things. Well, can I, I let me jump in here because there is something that I'm getting to, which is um, what I hear in those moments and see in your shows is you do have a particular style and your style does often smuggle in ideas, smuggle in history, smuggle in identity. It, sometimes the smuggling is subtle, <laughs> sometimes not as much, but it's like it's smuggler. just a series of Trojan horses, you know? Yes, correct. 
And, like he seems nice. And, he has glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's like pow in the face. Well, which is Sometimes what Blackish have- was like, right? Which is what, like, when I think about the projects you've yes. worked on and the people you've mentored, they also have that in common. Like, where things are, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just their point of view. It's how yes. they are how they are introducing these ideas. That's The right. way of introduction. I appreciate that. Yes. That's true. So I didn't make mm-hmm. that up. You, so sometimes I just have to test a theory. No, you're right. I've never heard the fact that I'm a smuggler. But do you know what right. I mean? Like The yeah. Office, Mr. Oh, Brown. Course. Like it's like subtext slash really text. <laughs> it's like, Absolutely. It's like, and as Which you pointed the out, uh, The that, Daily Show people, that that's why they cared so much about that, right? It was the it was calling out something that's so obvious. I'll just say this as someone who's a journalist. Mm-hmm. So obvious when you're watching the news, but no one ever says it. Why is this correspondent here talking about this particular thing? It's like an mm-hmm. unspoken thing. And then all of a sudden... Avatar Larry Wilmore like <laughs> was was doing the thing and everyone understood it and it's yeah. what the joke how the joke worked and it was just like another mm-hmm. moment of you smuggling in a thing. I appreciate that. You know and, and you now you made me think about you know I really appreciated my time at the Daily Show with John Stewart talking about issues that we were going to talk about and John was really really great and because I would come onto the show to do it. I lived in California. I wasn't working on the show full time. So, you know, they'd say, hey, Larry, you know, this thing came up. Do you want to come out? Maybe we'll do a bit or we come out and we think of something. But I would always talk with John about the thing itself and what was the important things in it that I felt needed to be in there. And sometimes we'd argue about it and sometimes we'd agree on it. But he always listened to that. And we always tried to make those conversations as you say, there's something being smuggled in there, too. And even somehow um, the people who have gravitated to you as mentees, say an Issa Rae with Insecure or Quinta Brunson, who obviously is like a superstar now with Abbott Elementary, these are also people who have really um, done a fascinating job of bringing their identity to mm-hmm. a very mainstream space and doing it the way you talked about within Living Color, that like the gaze mm-hmm. is their own. Correct. And but when you were doing that, when you were doing the PJs or moving on to these other shows, what was it like trying to? Yeah, you had to fight for it. It wasn't necessarily given to you. I can't imagine Um, leaving a writer's room run by Keenan Ivory Waynes and then like going to some network sitcom. Do you know what I mean? Like I made it my purpose back then to try to help raise the level in any way that I could where we, I call it that we had to be reckoned with during that time, Mm -hmm. you know? So when I was doing the PJs, you know, it was important for me to do a smart show as well as a funny show, you know, like both of those things were very important to me, consciously important. They weren't in the back of my mind. That was in the front of my mind. Bernie Mac show, even that, you know, I was consciously playing with form, doing things that were different. Right. And for people who haven't seen it, the late Bernie Mac, amazing sitcom, but about a guy who's like run, who is raising his uh, sister's children. Right. And she and they address the camera. There's like breaking of the fourth wall. There's a lot of sort of um, things we take for granted now, but that are very engaging in a sitcom setting. Wasn't on TV at that point. And certainly now that I think about it, any show with a black lead. There you go. (laughs) Most important part of that, by the way, Bernie Mac show was the most important show I've done in showbiz. Really? Because yes. And 
if I'm going to toot my own horn, I don't normally do this. If we do an excavation of the smart black show, we can go back to the Bernie Mac show as a grandfather, you know, because um, first of all, I want an Emmy for the script on that show, which you just did not do. Black writers did not win Emmys, you know, for black shows. That just didn't happen. Black writers didn't win Emmys for writing, period. You know, I was the first black writer to win a single Emmy for a television show. That hadn't happened before. And it took 20 years for it to happen again with uh, with Quinta as a single black person writing for basically a black TV show. You know, so some of my influences and some of the things we were talking about, we were watching French New Wave films together. You know, I was looking at the cutting style of Jean-Luc Godard and Breakfast and that sort of thing. I was also aping the kind of feel that reality shows was having at that time. That's too. true and with the also, confessional. That's right. And I was experimenting also with a different type of storytelling that wasn't on TV. And it, most of television at that time, and remember, I was a theater major. I studied playwriting and all these things. So TV had a lot of television sitcoms, especially multicams, have fallen into the farce format. You know, there's an action. Someone doesn't know about this action. And a lot of the comedy comes around the person not knowing this thing. And when is it going? When are they going to find out? Ah, you know, but I thought there are many different forms you can do in television. You don't have to do a farce, you know. And so when I was looking at reality shows and I noticed that it wasn't following necessarily a plot, it was just following these characters. I thought, oh, I wonder if you could write something that's just a character journey. That's true. Which is a different type of writing, yeah. you know. And so it doesn't follow plot conventions. So it's going to be a little more unexpected the action that's going to happen it's not going to be as predictable there's no Chekhov's gun here where that gun appears in the first act and someone's got to shoot in the third that's not going to exist yeah and then in Bernie Mac you have a character you have a an actor who you want to spend that kind of time with that's right that's right exactly when he right. speaks you want to just keep listening so even if that's he's exactly not right. solving a crime at the end of it you want to sit with him that was an epiphany that I had, actually. To you, how, what, where is the age of black television right now? Well, I'm always a little pessimistic about things, you know. I know. I feel it's, like it's uh, doing great. I'm like totally it is, but like, I'm always insecure. Very I may destroy you, Abbott Elementary. I feel like we're in another age of writer-creators. I, I agree with you, and I think it's great, and I hope it continues for a long time. I hear a but. I get concerned when I see a lot of budget cuts, and I see, you know, thousands of people being laid off, and I see... And okay, the writer's strike. Writer's strike. I say, okay, who's going to be telling the stories now? You know, <laughs> what stories are they going to be buying? Who's gay? You know, and I look at that. Uh, the good news is there are a lot of people, not just black people, but people of color and different... You know, people from all walks of life who are making more of the decisions now, who are the gatekeepers, which is good. That's one of the biggest changes to not just the creative people, but the people who are making the decisions in the boardrooms and that sort of thing. So that gives me hope, too. So but I think for me, it's always good to be vigilant about it and not be complacent about it. You know, what are you looking forward to next? I know you've been doing this podcasting. But you're in this interesting point in your career where, like we said, you're you're mentoring people who are having astronomical success and people are coming to you to talk about the industry as a whole. And so, like, how how do you what are you looking forward to? Um, it's a really good question. It's 
not always easy to answer at any given time because, you know, well, first of all, we're in a writer's strike right now and it puts the kibosh on maybe on projects that I already have in development. So one thing I I might do more teaching too is another thing. Um, I might, I want to do a, a book is another thing that I want to do. I've been asked to do a book. I was about to say, how, do, how is there not before. a stack of Larry Wilmore? Not fake essays, I, by the way, too. I, we would like real no, information know. conveyed. Well, I've been talking about it recently, and I even asked online, if I had a book, what would you guys like to see for me? You know, just to kind of teasing it. But I think there's a couple of things out there book-wise that I think could be valuable. And one, I think, is the instruction book, you know, like, how do you do this? You know, how do you create? You know, where does that come from? What's the process? How do you put yourself out there? Because a creative process, let's not forget, it's a vulnerable process. When you're really operating at a level where you want, where people are going to connect to it. There's, there's a vulnerability that has to happen. And that vulnerability is you're being honest with yourself about something. And maybe you're telling something that you go, mm, I shouldn't talk about that. And I say, yes, you should talk about that. <laughs> if that's the first instinct to say, mm, I shouldn't do that. I say, yes, you should do that. You know, investigate that. What is that? Because that's the universal thing that people are going to connect to is that individual thing. So that area is something that I look forward to doing more of. And I really enjoy that as like, in other words, my goals aren't, I want to get a hit TV show. Like those aren't really my goals. My goals are more of expression and, you know, connecting and that type of thing and those sorts of areas. So That's a great goal. <laughs> that's a great goal. It's to what have. keeps you alive, right? I mean, that's what keeps you going. That was writer, producer, and actor Larry Wilmore. That's it for this episode of The Assignment. If you liked it, share it with friends. If you are loving it, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you have an assignment for us, you can give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 202-854-8802. And you can also record a voice memo on your phone. Email that to us at theassignment, all lowercase, at CNN.com. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Lori Gallaretta and Madeline Thompson. Our producers are Carla Javier, Jennifer Lai, and Dan Bloom. Our associate producer is Isoke Samuel. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez. Mixing and sound design by David Shulman. Dan DeZula is our technical director. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. As always, special thanks to Katie Hinman. I'm Audie Cornish, and thank you for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.